Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, June 12th. In today's news, migrant workers are moving north from Florida to other states in search of jobs. They might take COVID-19 with them. The sign-up page for President Trump's rallies now includes a coronavirus liability waiver. And this administration is concealing the identities of coronavirus loan recipients, shielding undeserving applicants from public scrutiny. But first, the big idea. For reasons doctors do not really understand, a small percentage of Americans have been sick with the novel coronavirus for more than 60 days now. Juana Diaz, a 62-year-old who lives here in D.C., has been living with symptoms every day since April 3rd. Kara Shivo, a 31-year-old social worker from Cedar Grove, New Jersey, came down with something that looked like pink eye back on March 15th and then wound up in the emergency room when she developed a fever and other symptoms. Since then, she says she has not had a single day when she's felt like she's back to normal. Matthew Long Middleton, a 35-year-old radio journalist in Kansas City, was struck with fever, chills, and typical flu-like symptoms on March 11th. He's never fully recovered. He says he tries to work from his bed, but sometimes just sitting up is too much. My colleagues on the health beat, Ariana Cha and Lenny Bernstein, report that post-viral syndromes have been associated with numerous viruses in the past. But until this contagion, they were considered relatively rare. In the case of COVID-19, researchers are unsure whether people with extended symptoms are simply facing a long recovery or whether their illness will come to resemble something like chronic fatigue syndrome, a complex illness characterized by a profound exhaustion and sleep problems or other conditions that could last for years or even a lifetime. The virus involves and attacks so many parts of our bodies from the brain to the toes, that some symptoms may be due to damage to different organs that have not been able to repair themselves. Some patients with long-tail illnesses are testing positive, then negative, and then positive again for the coronavirus. Many scientists believe the tests are likely picking up dead virus. In studies, the coronavirus has only been active for 9 to 11 days. But a few autopsies have shown the virus lurking, in puzzling places like the spleen, which is creating continuing uncertainty. I looked at some pictures of spleens from autopsies, and they are not pretty. Melanie Montano, who's just 32 years old, went to sleep on March 14th feeling fine. Nothing's been the same since. The next morning, she woke up with a tightness in her chest. Then she developed a fever, cough, and stomach pains. Then she lost her sense of taste and smell. She had a strange pins and needles sensation on the back of her legs. These symptoms keep coming and going in waves like a roller coaster. They've kept her bedbound for 89 days straight now through the school shutdowns, shelter in place orders, protests over those restrictions, states reopening, and now the second wave. Melanie was a writing instructor in Teaneck, New Jersey. She commuted by subway into the city she jogged for miles every morning, and she went to bars many nights with friends. But since she got sick, Melanie has been sleeping 14, 18, sometimes even 22 hours a day. 22 hours a day. The second month of Melanie's illness was more of the same, except her coughing got worse, although strangely she was breathing more easily. When her condition did not improve by April, the self-isolation began to really take a mental toll. 
In the third month of being sick, Melanie's fever broke and she got her sense of smell back. But then the searing heat that she had felt in her lungs at the beginning of her illness returned. She says that this sickness has rocked her world in a way that she never thought was even possible. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end this terrible week in America. Number one, farm workers living and working in cramped conditions are especially vulnerable to exposure and infection from the virus, much like workers in the meatpacking industry who've also been hit particularly hard. Workers groups say state officials in Florida and growers looking to maximize their profits have been slow to respond to the threat and did not move until fairly recently to ramp up testing. My colleague Laura Riley reports that the positive testing rate among the farm workers in Imacoli, Florida, which is our country's winter tomato capital, is around 40% compared to 5% of the overall state's population. During the winter and early spring, Imacoli is home to about 25,000 people, 43% of whom live below the poverty line on an income below $26,000 for a family of four. Latino and Haitian migrant workers board early morning school buses or hop into the roll-up backs of U-Haul trailers to reach the fields. They work side-by-side, hand-harvesting, mostly round green tomatoes that are then later gassed with ethylene to ripen them. At the end of the day, these same workers hop back on those buses and trucks to head home to retrofitted trailer parks, often owned by the growers, with between 6 and 16 workers bedding down in bunks and mattresses on the floor in single-wide trailers that are meant to be one-bedroom homes. The Florida Department of Health in Collier County, assisted by an 11-member team from Doctors Without Borders, Doctors Without Borders in America, has stepped up testing among migrant worker communities ahead of their annual migration northward to work the fields from Georgia to the Carolinas to Virginia and all the way up to Michigan. But Christine Hollingsworth, a spokeswoman for the county's health department, acknowledges that officials have had problems in ramping up testing and contacting workers with their test results, in part because many workers don't have primary care providers, but also a lot of these folks are undocumented and they're fearful of giving out their contact details despite assurances from county officials that they won't be deported because they're scared. Number two, the sign-up page for tickets to President Trump's first campaign rally since March, which will be in Tulsa next Friday on Juneteenth of all days, includes something that has not appeared ahead of previous rallies. A disclaimer noting that attendees, quote, voluntarily assume all risks related to exposure to COVID-19 and agree not to hold Donald Trump, his campaign, or the venue liable should they get sick. More than a dozen states are now tallying record high new infections. Oklahoma is not among them, although Tulsa County has reported a gradual uptick of new cases since the beginning of the month. The Box Center, where Trump will speak next week, has a capacity of more than 19,000, and the campaign wants to pack in as many as possible. And the Republican Party officially announced overnight that its national convention festivities will move to Jacksonville, Florida, from Charlotte, so that Trump will be able to address a packed arena. North Carolina public health officials had expressed concern about the dangers of doing so in their state. Florida officials said they'll allow the Trump campaign to essentially do whatever it wants. The president is now poised to accept his adopted party's nomination on the 60th anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday, 
when a mob of 200 whites organized by the KKK and supported by local police officers used ax handles and baseball bats to club defenseless African-Americans in Jacksonville who were trying to integrate a lunch counter. Major commemorations have already been planned for the city that day in August. The city of 900,000 is 30% African-American and local black leaders are aghast that Trump is coming. They say their commemoration will be a protest and that it is now more important than ever. Number three, Trump administration officials responsible for spending $660 billion in taxpayer-backed small business assistance say they will not disclose the amounts or recipients of these subsidized loans, backtracking on an earlier commitment to release individual loan data that they made in order to get Congress to appropriate the money. The Small Business Administration has previously released detailed loan information dating to 1991 for the Federal 7A program, a long-standing small business loan program on which the larger Paycheck Protection Program is based. But Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and SBA Administrator Jovita Carranza declined to discuss any specific borrowers during a congressional hearing, angering senators from both parties. The SBA and Treasury allowed lenders to take borrowers at their word regarding their needs and eligibility. This has created conditions ripe for abuse. Reality television star Mo Fain was arrested and charged with bank fraud for spending more than $1.5 million in taxpayer loan money from the SBA on jewelry, expensive cars, and child support. Fain received a loan through a Georgia shell corporation he created called Flame Trucking. Others may be using money for nefarious purposes, but just might be smarter about how they do it to avoid getting indicted. Well-known restaurant and hotel chains, including Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, initially received tens of millions of dollars through their franchises from this program meant to prevent small businesses from going belly up. According to filings with the SEC, nearly 300 publicly traded companies received a billion dollars in stimulus funding, prompting an after-the-fact ruling from SBA that public companies with access to credit elsewhere would probably not qualify. Many of the businesses subsequently returned the money, although the SBA refuses to say exactly how many did so. We believe you have a right to know how your tax dollars are being spent. That's why The Post has partnered with 10 other news organizations to sue the SBA for access to records on loan recipients, the amounts of their loans, and other basic information that the agency has previously released until Trump appointees told them not to. The law is very clearly on our side here, and our attorneys are confident we will ultimately prevail in court. The real question is just how long it will take to get the information out there. But I want to end today by reflecting a little bit on the economic carnage of this contagion. The Dow slid more than 1,800 points yesterday on fears that the second wave is arriving sooner than expected. But putting the markets aside, for millions of working-class Americans, economic calamity looms this summer. On July 31st, the $600 federal unemployment payments that are going to folks who are out of work every week will end, and there's no appetite on Capitol Hill right now to replace that with anything as generous. That means that income for tens of millions of households will plummet in August. That will coincide with evictions returning after being put on hold for months. A federal law that bans evictions in any properties financed by federally backed mortgages, which believe it or not is one in four U.S. households, expires on July 25th. The administration says it will not extend that. And unless there are extended statewide orders banning all evictions in places that have been hit hardest by the crisis 
on the unemployment front will also expire this summer. Florida's expires on July 1st. California's on July 28th. And New York's on August 20th. Payments on millions of student loans that have been paused will also be required again starting on October 1st. And the more than 4 million homeowners who received a six-month pause on their mortgages after the mass layoffs in April will need to start making payments again at the end of October. This is going to put a tight squeeze on a lot of working families. But the rich keep getting richer. Consider this. A hedge fund manager stands to profit handsomely after flipping a taxpayer-funded coronavirus drug that he acquired the rights to. Ridgeback Biotherapeutics had no laboratories, no manufacturing facility of its own, and a minimal track record when it struck a deal in March with Emory University in Atlanta to license an experimental coronavirus pill invented by university researchers with $16 million in grants from you, the U.S. taxpayer. But what the tiny Miami company did have was a willingness from its wealthy owners, hedge fund manager Wayne Holman, no relation, and his wife Wendy to place a bet on the treatment. The wager has paid off with extraordinary speed in May, just two months after acquiring the antiviral therapy called EIDD-2801 from Emory. They sold exclusive worldwide rights to the drug giant Merck. Demands are increasing in Congress and around the world that the big pharma companies set affordable prices on coronavirus treatments and vaccines and distribute them equitably. Yet the role of middlemen like the Ridgebacks creates another excuse for the big drug companies to jack up their prices for consumers like you, layering on extra costs. It's just another pressure point on folks who are trying to make next month's rent so that they don't get evicted and trying to put food on the table for their kids. It's not fair, but that's the way it works. And that's the Daily 202 for Friday, June 12th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. 